is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon, Religious Liberty Program Specialist here at the USCCB. And today I'm happy to be joined by Archbishop William Laurie. Archbishop Laurie is the Archbishop of Baltimore, and he is the chair of the Ad Hoc Committee for Religious Liberty. So thank you for joining us today, Archbishop. And good to be with you, Aaron. Yes, I know that you are very busy, so I'm grateful that you were able to make it over here. Uh, Now, the HHS mandate is back in the news, Mm -hmm. and I know we'll want to talk a little bit about that. But I want to start with something else, because you recently gave a talk to a gathering of theologians in which you pointed out that when we talk about religious freedom, we do well to lead with a proper understanding of freedom rather than with the issues. That if we assume that everyone means the same thing when they're talking about freedom, and we just start off with with kind of the threats to religious liberty, uh, then we can come across as, as like another interest group. And so I thought that was a good point, and I would like to take it to heart and start with with that kind of a question. Uh, when Catholics talk about religious freedom, what are we talking about? Uh, when we Catholics talk about religious freedom, we need to see it um, not as a right granted to us by the government, but rather as an endowment given us by God. It is part of our nature. It is part of us, that deep part of us, that God created to be free so that we would be capable uh, not merely of making choices, but of loving that which is true and good and right. Mm -hmm. And so human, uh, our religious freedom is part of that endowment. And, And in many ways, it is our first freedom because it pertains to our first relationship, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, at least in order of priority, mm-hmm. is with God. And so it is that gift God has given to human nature mm-hmm. such that we can respond to him in love and to others in a spirit of service. Mm-hmm. And so we begin by looking at what we call interior freedom. Mm -hmm. And this is that sovereign freedom of the human person that you see so magnificently redeemed uh, and displayed Mm -hmm. uh, by martyrs and by courageous people across the centuries. Uh, Some believers, some Catholic, some not. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless... This is an endowment God has given us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really I think that that point about interior freedom is so helpful because so often we just think of freedom just as kind of the right, as you say, to choose, just to do what I want, and that's and we're talking about something much more than that. And um, this interior freedom it opens up to service. Uh, one of the things that reminds me of in working here at the USCCB is this upcoming convocation of Catholic leaders, because we're focusing uh, on this theme of missionary discipleship, of forming people to be, um, uh, forming Catholics to be missionary disciples. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about what connection you see between this call to missionary discipleship and the promotion of religious freedom. Uh, First of all, um, evangelization has to do with the proclamation of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with 
committed disciples of Christ um, who bear witness to Christ and enable others to encounter Christ, to meet Christ, not uh, superficially, and not just at an emotional level or an intellectual level, but really in the deep parts of, of the human spirit. And it is that encounter with Christ that uh, begins to redeem and heal our freedom and the power of the spirit. Our freedom has been wounded mm-hmm. by original sin, like every other part of us. And once this uh, endowment of interior freedom has been uh, put on the path of healing and once it becomes activated uh, by a living faith, not merely a nominal faith, but a living faith, Mm -hmm. then people begin to realize what a precious gift it is, Mm -hmm. that it is this gift from God by which we can open out our hearts in love of God, choosing God first, but choosing as a very close second, our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so love of God and service of neighbor mm-hmm. is interconnected Yes, and it is accessed, as it were, by the exercise of our religious freedom. So mm-hmm. you see, it's before any of this has to do with law and courts and legislatures and the culture wars, mm-hmm. it really has to do with the redemption of our humanity. Mm-hmm. And if more people understood this and more people lived this, uh, our society would be different and our laws and our court decisions mm-hmm. would probably be different. Yes. Well, and when you talk about... Um uh, living this and and this being uh, an authentic uh, authentic faith of growing in discipleship growing in in true freedom um you know we we are talking also about building a kind of culture within the church and you know you're not just the ad hoc the chair for the ad hoc committee you're a pastor you're the bishop of of Baltimore and so i know you've thought about this uh, what are some of the ways that we can that we can build a culture within the church uh, where the faithful can grow to experience this kind of freedom, to to grow more fully into more uh, m- mature Christians? Um, there's no one recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, issues come up when they come up. People raise questions when they raise questions. Um, and um, it's important for us when we respond to those questions to help people sort of come from the shallow end of the pool to the deeper end of the pool Mm -hmm. where they can, in fact, encounter Christ and rediscover their faith. Mm -hmm. So they might begin with a question about why does the church insist on its teachings on human sexuality or its teachings on life or its teachings on marriage, seeing these simply as maybe a partisan issue Mm -hmm. or a culture war issue when in fact they are manifestations of what it means uh, to fall in love with Christ, to encounter the Father and the Holy Spirit, and to discover these basic structures of human existence, Mm -hmm. sexuality, marriage, life, 
and in the course of that, freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we go about evangelizing, the rediscovery of freedom is a very happy byproduct. And then it is not such a stretch to ask people to want to protect their religious freedom. In fact, they will want to do it. Now, there's other people who are not particularly religious but have thought about these things in secular terms Mm -hmm. or in philosophical terms um, or in historical terms who will also say, you know, it's a good idea for our culture to to, uh, protect and defend religious freedom. Yes. There are allies, Mm -hmm. and the church has always built bridges Mm -hmm. to folks like that, and we need to build bridges to Mm -hmm. folks like that. That's part of creating this culture. But as a pastor, my first and my foremost responsibility is to be an evangelizer Mm -hmm. who, in the course of evangelizing, awakens in people a great spirit of love, thanksgiving, and joy for Mm -hmm. the gift of religious freedom. When you talk about uh, building bridges, I think that in it seems to me that in recent years that um, partly in response to these religious freedom challenges that we deal with, uh, that there maybe is a growing sense that some parts of the broader culture might be getting a little bit hostile to to the church. Um, Pope Francis himself talks about polite persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think that the church might reach out and contribute to society uh, even in the face of this skeptical or even sometimes you know, outright hostile, uh, hostile culture? Uh, the first way I think that we respond to hostility and maybe the ultimate way, maybe the only way we respond is in love. We do what St. Paul says in Ephesians, We speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. We speak the truth reasonably. We speak the truth as witnesses of Christ. And we speak the truth backed up by the doing of truth, namely love and service, especially to the poorest and the most marginalized. Mm -hmm. So how is it, for example, that uh, uh, bishops across the United States work with legislators at the state level who might harbor a fair amount of hostility for Mm -hmm. what the church believes and teaches. Very often it's because we have these wonderful Catholic charities who are in and of uh, our urban and rural areas where there's so much poverty, and there they develop not only a reputation for competence as a social service agency, which is very important, Mm -hmm. but they also uh, develop a reputation for being loving and compassionate and humane. Mm -hmm. And that witness enables us to build a bridge. So I remember talking to a legislator in Maryland who was very, very opposed to any kind of assistance for uh, our, our Catholic schools in Baltimore that serve um, inner-city kids from really some of the poorest neighborhoods in the United States. Mm-hmm. And one day she said, you know, she said to me, the light finally came on, she said. 
this really is about the kids. Mm-hmm. And while there's a lot I don't like about your church, you really do serve these kids well. I've mm-hmm. changed my mind. That's kind of, it's hard work. Yes, yes. It's it ongoing. takes persistence, mm-hmm. and you can never, you, you can never um, um, allow yourself to be overtaken by the negative, bitter spirit that we see in the culture. Mm-hmm. You always have to exhibit the joy of the gospel, but you do have to be persistent. Yes, yes. And you do have to be forthright. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that we should discuss some recent news, uh, the recent news about the um, HHS mandate, that the draft of revised HHS regulations was leaked recently, and uh, I'm sure there's still going to be a fight over the new regulations, so it's not like everything's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even so, I mean, you must be glad, just as a bishop and as someone who's had to deal with this going on and on. I mean, when I first started coming to the ad hoc committee meetings, it was you got the sense that it's just kind of like, is this thing ever going to be over? <laughs> it must be kind of a, a such a a sense of relief that maybe this is finally that the that that we can see it on the horizon that we're not going to have to deal with this anymore. It's a little bit like um, um, going through the tunnel under the Baltimore Harbor. It's a very long tunnel, and you wonder if there is light at the end. Uh There appears to be light at Mm -hmm. the end of this struggle. Um, But to change my metaphors, nothing is a slam dunk. Mm -hmm. So the executive order that was put out a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. um, pointed things in a pretty good direction, I thought. What I've seen of the leaked executive order looks very, very good. It offers um, really broad protections uh, for different classes of religious institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, and we think they're all interconnected anyway, Mm -hmm. and and for other kinds of of, uh, corporations and organizations that might have conscientious objections. This is a good thing. Mm-hmm. We don't know, though, what might happen. Uh, sometimes these orders are leaked, uh, uh, and in the leaking, opposition is raised, and they get modified, so we mm-hmm. certainly do have to see what happens. It could also provoke a court fight, and mm-hmm. we have to be prepared for that. What I sense, however, though, is that um, the situation has changed enough that we can look ahead with confidence, Mm -hmm. uh, at least on a band of issues we have been concerned about. Not everything by Mm -hmm. any means, but HHS mandate uh, and related issues like that are looking more positive as of this podcast. Yes. (laughs) Well, and, you know... uh, I mean, speak, uh, speaking of the whole HHS mandate thing, I mean, as I understand, you, you were ordained to the priesthood uh, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, when you were discerning that God might be calling you to serve the church as a priest, I suspect that something like the government trying to force the Catholic Church to, to um, provide birth control is just was probably not nowhere on your horizon. I'm wondering if you could just maybe reflect a little bit on your own kind of how 
you know, how your understanding of your of God's call on you and your ministry maybe has changed as these sorts of things have come up. Because I'm sure when you, uh, uh, 45 or 50 years ago, when you first were thinking about this, that uh, you thought you were going to be doing other things. At least I suspect so. I'm just wondering kind of how it's changed as these things So pop Pope up. Francis likes to say that ours is a God of surprises, and certainly the Lord has been surprising me uh, for 40 or more years. So when I was ordained a priest, uh, the course was sort of set for me that I would be a seminary professor teaching sacramental theology, something I would have loved to have done. Mm -hmm. So I went to Catholic U, I got my degree, I was actually preparing my, um, my courses and all of that, and everything changed. I, I began working ultimately in church administration, became a bishop, and ended up in a part of the country I'd never dreamt I would serve in, namely the Northeast in Connecticut. And there, um, it was a wonderful experience, but uh, not everything went entirely swimmingly uh, in terms of the uh, legislature. And they, there was proposed a law uh, that would have, um, um, would have had the states mandating how Roman Catholic parishes are run and would have taken the administration of Roman Catholic parishes out of the hands of pastors and bishops mm -hmm. and forced the church to do this by elected lay committees. And they basically tried to make us con a congregationalist they polity. Did. And that was the yeah. established church in Connecticut yes. until 1819. <laughs> right, right. And that's what we said. They said, if someone wants to be a congregationalist, terrific. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're different. We're Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, and thank God that went nowhere, and the, the, not only the Catholic community, but almost every reasonable person said, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And it was sort of, but it alerted me, really, uh, it really alerted me to the fact that the culture was changing, that there was more uh, hostility toward religion, in society in general, and in some circles of government. And so I wrote a, I thought, well, I ought to write something about this. So I did a little pastoral letter on religious freedom. And uh, next thing I know, I'm sitting in a bishop's meeting, and a presentation's being made on religious freedom threats around the country. And what pops up on the screen but the front cover of my pastoral letter. <laughs> and I said... <laughs> How did that happen? And then, so it then began to dawn on me that that we bishops were going to have to play not only an individual role in this, but a united role, and mm -hmm. it has become one of our priorities. Mm -hmm. And then, secondly, uh, when uh, Tropical Storm Irene was going to hit uh, Connecticut uh, back in, uh, I think it was 2011. Um, right before it hit, Cardinal Dolan, who was president of the Bishops' Conference, called me and said, would you think about chairing an ad hoc committee I'm creating on religious liberty? <laughs> and that's when I knew that uh, the Lord had, uh, had uh, really brought the surprise full circle. So had you asked me 
40 years ago, whether I'd be doing something like this, I would have said, I, th- I think you're a little bit crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I said, I, I'm, I'm going to be a very quiet professor of sacramental theology. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you mentioned um, the threats around the country uh, and just there are these other threats. What are some of the other challenges? We, we've just mentioned a couple. What are some other challenges you might see that you can see coming down the pike? Well, there's a number of things. Uh, first of all, there is something uh, still embedded in the Affordable Care Act uh, known now as the transgender mandate. It's from Section 1557. And that would uh, uh, not only force... Uh, objecting entities to ensure for transgender surgical services and other kinds of services, but also for Catholic hospitals to perform those services. Currently, there's an injunction against that nationwide, but I always think an injunction is a little bit like hanging by a thread. Mm -hmm. In many parts of the country, uh, adoption services... Uh, Catholic adoption services are out of business um, because of the Obergefell decision outlawing uh, or or rather legalizing same-sex marriage. And our Catholic adoption agencies um, want to place children with um, in in homes where there's a mom and a dad. Mm -hmm. Mom, dad, and the kids. Right, right. And because of that, Many of them are out of business. There's a legislative remedy for that, but it's pretty much stalled in the Congress Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. Um, There are in some states an abortion mandate. If there's going to be a contraceptive mandate, you can bet your bottom dollar that the next thing you're going to see is an abortion mandate. Well, lo and behold, Mm -hmm. you got one in in, um, New York and you got one in California Mm -hmm. again there's a legislative remedy for that the Conscience Protection Act and we're pushing very hard for that to Mm -hmm. be across the way uh, you find um, Catholic social service agencies Catholic universities facing uh, licensure and accreditation challenges as free speech gets challenged in college Mm -hmm. campuses you can bet religious freedom gets challenged yeah. because, as Helen Helen Alvarez said, uh, they travel together. Right, right. Those fundamental freedoms travel together. So you see a lot of challenges like that. But the biggest one of all, in my mind as a pastor, is that as the culture becomes less and less churched, fewer and fewer people appreciate the value of religious freedom and are more willing to believe that it's actually a form of discrimination yeah. flying under a religious flag. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, you when you mention some of those different issues that a lot of them have to do with things like abortion and um, or marriage, contraception, and I'm sure you get this all the time of people saying, you know, why don't you just focus on evangelizing and stop talking about human sexuality or the, those sorts of things that just focus on the, the what's the focus on mission focus on evangelization instead uh, I mean I often think when I hear that I'm kind of like and what can you do if, if the ACLU sues you you can't just 
you have to you still have to respond to, to these sorts of things or when when there are laws and regulations you can't not talk about uh, these sorts of issues you can't just back down um, I'm curious you know how do you respond to that sort of like why don't you just stop talking about this stuff so only in Plato's world of ideas can you line everything up neatly and says, we're going to do this first, and we're going to do this second, and we're going to do this third. So we'll evangelize, and then we'll catechize, and then we'll um, perhaps um, down the road talk about these hot-button issues. Mm-hmm. Um, life isn't like that. And uh, the faith intersects with life as it is, not as we might wish it to be in some idealistic setting. Mm -hmm. So uh, for us, it's not a question of whether we'll deal with them, it's how we deal with them. Right. And one of the ways not to deal with it is simply to become um, a lobbyist, simply to become a cultural warrior, as sometimes one is accused of being. Mm Um, but rather, uh, indeed, to preach the gospel full-throated, to engender the joy of the gospel, but to deal with things as they come up. So if there is an existential threat against the church Mm -hmm. through truly unfriendly legislation or um, decisions in courts uh, or policies from the government or the be it state or federal, mm-hmm. the church has got to respond. Mm-hmm. We have to. We have institutions of uh, that that evangelize by doing charity and provide services that no one else is providing, and we have to preserve and defend our right to be the church mm-hmm. and the culture. We may not win that fight, but we have an obligation to try. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we stop evangelizing. Right, right. It doesn't mean we stop giving a reason for our hope. Mm-hmm. It means that sometimes you have to do these things altogether. Yes. So might I have a, Catholics who are catechized but not evangelized to sitting in the pews? Of course I do. Mm-hmm. Is that the right order? Of course it's not. What do I do, throw up my hands? No. You deal with it as it is. Right, right. And so we're dealing with life in the in the real world, and we're trying to um, both evangelize and catechize and um, protect the life of the church. And isn't that what a father does for a family, mm-hmm. a mother does for her family? And I think I've heard you say it that, um, you know, people care about this stuff. I mean, it would be weird to, to not talk about and not have something to say about something that's important to a lot of people. And in that respect, the way we bear witness to those issues can actually be a way of doing evangelization. If, if our voice, if, if we have a humane kind of um, approach to these things and people see that the, you know, what the gospel does to heal a broken culture, then... Mm-hmm. then it actually, you're doing both at the same time. It's wrong to kind of pit these things against one yes, another. Yes, and I, that you make a very good point, uh, that these are not, uh, um, they feel like very different operations sometimes, but they are, in fact, interconnected. Mm-hmm. So when we're defending freedom, we are speaking um, 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 
the truth about the human person. Mm -hmm. And um, we are speaking the truth about intermediate structures in mm -hmm. culture that stand between the individual conscience and the power of the government that are essential for a just and humane society. Mm -hmm. So we are, in fact, um, engaging uh, in, in um, uh, evangelization. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are also um, defending our right uh, to serve in freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, one other uh, last question is just, you know, we, we've talked mostly about kind of our, our advocacy on behalf of our own institutions. I wonder if you could say a little bit, though, about our role in defending religious freedom and solidarity with, with other faith groups, because we often work in these coalitions with, with, with non-Catholics. Um, kind of, how do you see our role in defending the rights of, of non-Catholics? Well, let me... Um um, sort of cast the net a little more broadly. Okay. And to think about um, uh, threats to religious freedom, not just at home, but abroad. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the out-and-out -out genocide and persecution going on in the Middle East and Africa and other parts of the world, um, Pope Francis speaks there of an ecumenism of blood. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize uh, brothers and sisters who are Orthodox Christians, um, who are Christians in communion with the Holy Father, other religious minorities, such as the Shia Muslims, who are under this kind of threat. Um, when we defend religious freedom, we are not just defending our own private rights as right, Catholic right. Christians. Mm -hmm. We are defending a human right, one that was recognized so appropriately by the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, spearheaded by Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. We're doing that. Mm -hmm. we're, we're speaking a universal truth about humanity, it applies to every culture, every faith, every religious institution uh, that is truly serving the common good, and of course every individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, as you mentioned at the very beginning, when you talked about uh, what Catholics mean by religious freedom, I think about you know in in dignitatis humanae that it's it's rooted in the nature of the person. So it's as you say, it's not just this isn't just something that's from Western culture or whatever. Mm -hmm. That we believe that it's that this is a human right that's for all people, and so we have a duty to protect it for all people. We really do. It's it's really um, a great cultural achievement mm -hmm. to have um, brought clearly into focus what religious freedom is, and. Um, we should recognize that some cultural achievements are valid across the board. This mm -hmm. is one of them. Mm -hmm. And we should not fritter it away. In, in, in some parts of the world, it is being put to the sword. In the West, the danger is that we will fritter it away and trade it off for um, ersatz rights mm -hmm. that have no 
real foundation mm-hmm. in humanity or in law. Mm-hmm. Well, Archbishop, uh, I know that you have a busy day today, uh, so I won't keep you longer, but I do hope we can do this again sometime because it really is a pleasure to hear from you. It's a lot of fun there, and then I want to thank you for your role in uh, helping the committee, the Ad Hoc Committee on Religious Liberty, uh, to do its work and to do it effectively. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And from our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Aaron Matthew Weldon with the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. God bless. Mm-hmm.